Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We're finishing Matthew 18 this morning. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to be in verses 21 through 35. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. And you'll have to give me uh, a brief moment here because technology has failed me once again. And uh, my sermon didn't pop up on my iPad. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Bear with me just a moment. Uh, why don't we go ahead and read the text as we uh, wait for the iPad to catch up. Matthew 18, 21 through uh, 35. This is God's word for us. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife, and his children, and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. When the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what, took, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers, until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of God to us this morning. If I were to ask you whether you were a forgiving person, what would you say? Most people, I think, would say, yeah, I'm a pretty forgiving person. After all, we all like to think of ourselves in a positive light, don't we? As a society, we all love radical acts of forgiveness. They make the news like murderers who are forgiven in court by the victim's family or um, concentration camp prisoners who forgive their former guards, right? Everybody loves stories like that. But I suspect um, that if you're anything like me, that most of us are not as forgiving as we'd like to think. Uh, sometimes forgiveness can be quite a struggle, can't it? Um, we, we have a rack of biblical counseling pamphlets in our foyer in the other room there. Um, and I can always tell what people are struggling with by which ones get taken. Um, and there's common problems, right? But I'll, I'll give you a hint. We're missing all the ones on forgiveness, right? Um, why? Well, because real, true, biblical forgiveness is hard. It's hard. A genuine forgiveness is so hard that sometimes people even say there are cases when forgiveness isn't necessary. Um, some people say, right, forgiveness is so hard that extending forgiveness for everything 
just excuses harmful actions. Uh, others say, well, we should forgive, yes, but we should forgive because of how it benefits us. Um, we get a sense of well-being, right? We get better blood pressure, so on and so forth, right? We benefit from forgiveness. That's the main reason we should do it. Uh, but as we'll see in this morning, right, in our text, in Jesus' parable, the biblical picture of forgiveness is not rooted in the benefits we receive. The biblical picture of forgiveness is based on the incredible forgiveness and mercy that we have received from God. And this morning we're going to see a question about the limits of forgiveness, a picture of incredible forgiveness, a picture of incredible unforgiveness, and a warning for unforgiving people. Let's go back to verse 21 as we see a question about the limits of forgiveness. And now last week, if you were here with us, um, Jesus explained what his disciples needed to do to deal with other disciples who are sinning and not repenting, right? And the goal we saw of that is their restoration, uh, their repentance. Uh, we looked at church discipline, right? And the disciples have listened to Jesus talk about this, and, and then Peter comes up to Jesus. And Peter's usually the spokesman for the rest of the disciples in Matthew's gospel. Um, and he has a question for Jesus. And he comes up to him in verse 21, and, and he asks this question that I think probably goes back to verse 15, where Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, this is what you need to do. And here's what Peter asks. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? In other words, how many times do I have to keep forgiving the person who keeps sinning against me? How many times, Jesus? Uh, and now maybe you've asked the same question. Maybe you've had a situation where somebody keeps doing the same thing to you over and over and over, and you, you wonder, how many times do I have to keep forgiving? How many times will this person do this thing before forgiveness is no longer necessary for me? Have you been there before? Have you been in a situation like that? And Peter wants a number, right? He wants a clear limit for forgiveness. And I don't think Peter views himself as unreasonable here. He even suggests a number. He says, as many as seven times? As many as seven times? Right? Do I need to forgive as many as seven times before I don't have to anymore? Now, believe it or not, in Peter's day, the rabbis, the Jewish teachers, had a standard of three. That was the limit, right? Three times you have to forgive, and then you don't need to anymore. So Peter's actually, he, he really is going above and beyond here. He's doubling it and then some. Uh, but Peter still assumes there's a definite limit for forgiveness. There's some place where I don't have to do that anymore. Um, and, and, of course, we need to define forgiveness, but we're actually going to let Jesus do that. He's going to use his parable to define forgiveness for us. Um, but Peter assumes there's a limit to forgiveness. And maybe you've made the same assumption. Maybe you've taken the same perspective before, right? That there's a certain point where forgiving somebody over and over and over just becomes foolish, that just becomes naive, right? Doesn't that make me a doormat? Now, there's a point where, you know, I don't need to forgive until they change. Now, maybe you classify certain actions as unforgivable. Something that somebody did that was so bad that you just cannot forgive them. Um, uh, maybe you've set boundaries on who you will forgive and when you will forgive. I think most of us are prone to do this. I think most of us are prone to set some kind of boundary for where we stop forgiving. And that's why Jesus' response in verse 22 is so important. And here's what he says to Peter. He says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or, or it could be translated 70 times 7. Um, now, does that mean Jesus is setting a new limit here? He says, okay, well, once you get to 77 or 490, well, Peter, okay, 
right? Then you can stop forgiving. No, right? He's raising the bar way beyond seven, but he is not establishing a new standard. He's using such a large number to make the point that there is no upper limit to forgiveness. That's Jesus's point. He's using exaggeration to get that point across. There's no magic number that once you hit it, you don't have to forgive anymore. There's no set boundary on how often one must forgive. There's no upper limit. And Jesus's point to that, to that end is stop counting. Stop counting. Um, if you're trying to count up the number of times somebody sinned against you so you can figure out whether or not to forgive them, you are not a forgiving person. Right? You are not a forgiving person. Jesus demands unlimited forgiveness from his disciples. And as soon as I say that, right, objections start coming up. And I, I suspect probably the disciples started thinking these same things, right? Um, and these are real. What about the pain that I've been caused? Right? When people sin against us over and over and over, and sometimes in great ways, that causes indescribable pain and damage. What about when the other person won't apologize or change? Um, don't I need to stand up for myself? What about holding people accountable for their actions? Is Jesus saying that we just ignore all of this and put on rose-colored glasses and pretend like those things don't matter and just Pollyanna-style forgive? No, he's not. He's not. And, and just, just bear with me and bear with Jesus. Just put those off to the side. Don't forget about those objections, but just put them off to the side for a moment because um, it could be you have a misunderstanding about what forgiveness really is. And, and to clear the air on this, Jesus tells a parable. And this parable does two really great things. One, it defines forgiveness. It tells us what forgiveness really is. Um, and number two, it demonstrates why you and I, if we are his disciples, have no option but to be forgiving people. And that brings us to verse 23. Uh, Jesus tells this parable and paints a picture of incredible forgiveness. Uh, a parable is a story that illustrates deeper spiritual truth. Um, it, it's kind of like uh, more than an illustration, right? Because there's a lesson that goes along with it. There's something to be communicated, something to be learned. And Jesus' first words of this parable are, are very important. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, and then we find the rest of the parable. And this tells us something very important right from the start. We cannot view Jesus' teaching about forgiveness as general morality or as generic spirituality, right? We, we can't just view this as good advice. Uh, Jesus makes very clear from the get-go that his teaching on forgiveness here cannot be separated from the kingdom of heaven itself. Right? His teaching on forgiveness cannot be separated from Jesus himself. Um, his kingdom, his gospel, forgiveness, it all goes together. And in fact, as we'll see, radical and full forgiveness is a defining feature of his kingdom. Radical and full forgiveness is a defining feature of Jesus' kingdom. So we have to keep that in mind. This is not something you're going to find in the opinion column of the newspaper, right? This is Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God right here. Jesus begins this parable with a king, verse 23, who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Um, he has, of course, many servants, is a wealthy man, and apparently many of them have debts. And the king wants to start making arrangements for payment on these debts. He wants to get them resolved, and he calls the servants to come before him so that they're payments can be made. <clears throat> now in the parable, 
in this story, uh, the king represents God. The king represents God. Now, when we approach parables, we have to be careful not to be super tight, right? This king, as we'll see in a moment, um, ends up being a little cruel. And God is not cruel. But the basic idea here is this king represents God. The debt that the king wants to settle represents your and my sin against God. Uh, the Bible speaks about how when we break God's commands, we start racking up this debt that has to be paid. That's one of the images for sin in the Bible. It's like debt that just starts going and going and going and going, right? Uh, the more you have, the harder it is to get out from under it. Colossians 2.14 describes our sin as the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That's one of the ways the Bible talks about sin. And every time you and I sin, every time we break one of God's commands, whether on the outside or the inside, God's looking at the heart too, right? Every, every moment we don't glorify Him as we should, every uh, sinful thought we think, every word or, or action that does not honor Him, that increases our debt of sin. And so the servants of this king, they're accountable to Him, and in the same way, every single person is accountable to God. He made us. We belong to Him, right? We are accountable to Him and His law. And this debt has to be dealt with somehow. Now, if you were to go to God's bank and say, oh, how big is my debt, right? What, what, would, you, what would you think it is? Right? Do, you, do you think your debt is teeny tiny, right? Do you think it's big? What would be the dollar amount? Just think in your head for a moment. Um, now, one particular servant, verse 24, is brought before the king. And this servant's debt is 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. Now, we might think 10,000 talents is like $10,000. Um, but it's actually way, 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 way more than that. In our modern currency, 10,000 talents is about 4 billion with a B dollars. 4 billion with a B dollars. That is an absolutely insane amount of money. Can you imagine a person with that much personal debt? We're not talking a company or a corporation or a country. We're talking a person, you as an individual, right? Think about that for a moment. It's an absolutely crushing amount of money. The entire tax revenue, just to put it in perspective, the entire tax revenue from the region of Galilee, where Jesus was from, for a year was 200 talents. For all the people there that paid their taxes, that's how much came in, 200 talents. This man owes 10,000 talents. Now that's an exaggerated number for effect, right? But it's an absolutely crushing amount of money. This is an impossible debt. Dave Ramsey cannot help you with this. It's not going to work. There's no way a lowly servant is going to be able to pay this off. It's impossible. And in verse 25, Jesus recognizes that too, right? Since he could not pay, he's going to be sold. The only option here for this servant is that he has to be sold, his family has to be sold, all of his possessions liquidated and put towards debt, right? It's kind of like bankruptcy. But even, even that, whatever money that would bring in, that's it's not even going to make a drop of a drop in this man's debt. He cannot pay, but he is fully accountable. And he is in an impossible situation. And in verse 26, the servant takes the only real option left to him. He, he falls at the king's feet, and he begins to beg for mercy. He says, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Now, that's an impossible promise. He cannot pay this king everything. He cannot even pay this king a little bit of that, right? He can't pay that. 
It would take lifetimes, literally lifetimes of working just to get close. He can't make good on this, but he has nothing left to do. Charles Spurgeon, a, a preacher, remarks that those with great debts often are in denial about how big they actually are. Um, and that's certainly the case with how we view our sins sometimes. So the servant begs for mercy. And, and the king has a few ways he can respond here. He is within his realm of, of right as a king to throw this servant in jail until he's able to pay it, right? He is within his right as a king to sell him and his family. But instead of verse 27, he takes a different option. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. We, we see that the king decides to do something incredible. He doesn't, he doesn't even grant the servant's request. Right? He doesn't say, yeah, you can have some time. He goes so far beyond it. He completely forgives that servant's debt. He completely wipes out $4 billion like that. It's gone. He's free. And he releases the servant. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? And why does the king respond that way? Well, we, we see why in verse 27. Because he's moved by pity, by compassion, by mercy. The king doesn't make this decision based off the benefit to himself. He's actually losing money on this, right? He has no advantage to forgive this debt. He doesn't make the decision based on, on the promise of the servant or the servant's ability to repay. Servant can't do anything. And that's the thing, right? It's the servant's inability to pay that moves this king to respond out of compassion, pity, grace. This really is an incredible picture of forgiveness. And right here, this moment, helps us to define what forgiveness is. Helps us to define what forgiveness is. For forgiveness is the commitment to release the debt that is owed. Forgiveness is the commitment to release the debt that is owed. Not to stew on it, not to bring it up against them, not to relive that moment and think about how we get the upper hand on them next time, not to hold it above their head. It is releasing them from that debt. Here, right? Here. That's what we see the king doing. He doesn't do it begrudgingly either, notice. He's moved by pity, not pragmatism, right? Now, friends, this is a picture of God's incredible forgiveness for sinners, for you and for me, right? Here's, here's the newsflash. We are that servant. That's us. Born into this world, living our life, racking up a debt of sin we could never hope to repay, perhaps living in denial about it, and yet each moment it grows and grows and grows, one day it will crush us, right? We could never pay that. We could never do enough good deeds to make that debt go away, right? We can never erase it ourselves. Impossible. We could never be religious enough to persuade God to erase that debt. We are this servant right here, completely unable to deal with this mountain of debt. That's us. And God the King, because of His great compassion and mercy and pity upon us, has made a way for that debt to be forgiven. He sends Jesus Christ he sends His Son to do what you and I couldn't. Jesus lives a perfect life, right? For 33 years, He walks this earth, fully God, fully man, obeying God's law 
perfectly, inside and outside. Do you know what Jesus' account balance was at his death? It was infinitely in the, in the black, right? No debt. No debt of sin. Not what you and I have. But on the cross, Jesus says, I will take that debt upon myself. When I married my wife, she had some student loans. And I, I was fortunate to graduate without any. And Shelby was very bothered, very troubled, because when we got married, she did not like that her debt became my debt. That bothered her. Friends, that's what Jesus does on the cross. He says, I'm going to willingly take that just incomprehensible debt that my sinful people have, and I'm going to pay it off. I'm going to pay it off for them. I'm going to forgive them of that debt. I'm going to, I'm going to go one step further. Even. I'm going to give them my perfect credit. I'm taking their debt and I'm giving them my perfect credit as a gift. His perfect righteousness as a gift for us. And so when we believe in Jesus, when we trust Him and say, I can't pay this debt, Lord. I need mercy. God's answer is always yes. Always. Every time. And it's not a partial payment. Right? God's not up there grumbling about our sins, right? Saying, oh, I forgave them all that stuff and look what they're doing now. You know? That's not what God does. God doesn't say he forgives us, but really inside he, he's only forgiven us for some of our sins, right? Like, kind of like what we do sometimes. Um, no, listen to what the Bible says about what God does to your debt of sin when you trust in Jesus. He says he removes it as far as the east is from the west, right? That's, that's you know, an infinite distance apart. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. Psalm 103, verse 12. Micah 7, 19 says, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot and he will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, God has forgiven our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's what God does to your debt of sin, Christian, because you believed in Jesus. That's what he does. All of it. Every ounce. He completely frees us from the guilt of our sin. Now, are there consequences for our sin still? Yes, and God does not always spare us of that. But the guilt of our sin, that debt, is gone forever, once and for all. It's erased. No longer separating us from God. I mean, that's, that's incredible, right? That's what every Christian has received. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I'm, I'm so glad because I want you to hear this. You will be accountable for your debt. If you stand before God, on Judgment Day, there is a day that is coming, right, where each one of us is accountable to God, where He's going to settle that debt. And if you're choosing to go to Him and say, I'm going I'm to be accountable for that debt all by myself, you will not be able to pay it. You will not be able to pay it. And God will hold you to account for your sin. But you can trust in Christ today, and that sin will be forgiven. That debt will be gone. It will be like that moment right there in verse 27 where one second you have a crushing weight of debt and the moment you're freed from it. And, and having that debt forgiven, that's a reason for joy, isn't it? That's a reason for joy. An incredible picture of forgiveness. One that if you're a Christian, you've received. You've received that forgiveness. And, and so what would we expect the servant to do? If you were in his shoes, right, what would you do? I mean, I'd probably go throw a party, you know? We'd be joyful. We'd be generous. We'd be like Scrooge at the end of a Christmas carol, right? Uh, but tragically, that's not what we see at all. We've seen this incredible picture of forgiveness, and now we see a picture of incredible unforgiveness. Verse 28, But when the same servant went out, 
he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's the first thing this servant does. He leaves the king's presence and he finds his fellow servant. And, And we see that this servant, in verse 28, owes him some money. A hundred denarii. Uh, now, in, in our currency today, it's about $12,000. Um, now, $12,000 is not a small amount of money, is it? I don't think any of us would scoff at a $12,000 check that showed up in the mail tomorrow, right? We'd be pretty happy about that. Um, and I think that Jesus chooses this number for a reason, right? Because when others sin against us, it's not insignificant, is it? It has a real impact, doesn't it? $12,000, that's, that's a pretty big uh, amount of money. This isn't a $5 debt. That's $12,000, right? Jesus is not oblivious, in other words, to the impact that other people's sin can have on you. Jesus doesn't ignore that. But at the same time, and I'm not great at math, but I've worked it out a little bit. Think with me. How does $12,000 compare to $4 billion? It's miles apart, right? I mean, those are just two totally insanely different amounts of money. You could pay off $12,000 in your lifetime, right? And, and people do, right? We get mortgages. That's way more than $12,000. How does $12,000 compare to $4 billion? Uh, let me frame the question this way. How much does the sin of other people against us compare to our sin against God? How much does the sin of other people against us compare to our sin against God? That's what Jesus wants us to start thinking about. And when this servant finds his fellow servant, he treats him very roughly. Verse 28, he seizes him. He begins to choke him, right? Saying, pay what you owe. This is is pretty disturbing, right? This is way worse than he was treated by the king. Even though the king had a right to be hard on him, the king was merciful. And the other servant, in verse 29, he falls down before this, this first forgiven servant And he begs with him, he says, have patience with me and I will pay you. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That sounds familiar. Those are the exact same words this servant said to the king just moments ago regarding his own debt. Have patience with me and I will pay you. That's an important parallel. That's an important parallel and it reveals a direct connection between our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. The the second servant is pleading for mercy. He's begging And how does the first servant respond? Does he show the same mercy he received a moment ago? Uh, No. No, he doesn't. He refuses. Verse 30. He brings the other servant debt down upon his head with full weight. He says, I will get what I am owed. And he throws him in jail. Throws him in jail. The mercy that he received from the king just a moment ago uh, appears to have had no impact on him whatsoever. Right? Nothing. And that, Jesus says, is what you and I are like when we don't forgive other people. That is exactly what we are like when we do not forgive other people. We are that first servant saying, I'll get what I'm owed, this tiny, tiny debt. I will get what I am owed. And I'm going to hold that against you until things go how I want them to go. Until justice is done or until I get revenge or until I see something bad happen to you. Or until you say what I want you to say. I will get what I'm owed. That's that's what we are like. That second servant or that, that first servant. 
That's what we're like when we talk about the love and grace and mercy and forgiveness of God and then refuse to show it towards other people. Right there. Um, that's what you and I are like when we hold grudges or we hate people because of what they've done to us. That's us right there. Um, that's what you and I are like when we put limits and boundaries on forgiveness. That's what you and I are like when we do not forgive. And our sin against God is so incredibly great, it could never be paid. Right? It couldn't. It's infinitely great. And yet God has forgiven us fully. But when other people sin against us, that debt is, by comparison, so much incredibly smaller, isn't it? And we struggle to forgive such a smaller debt. And we forget that we are not the king. We're not the ones who are going to administrate justice at the end of the at the end of the age, right? That's not us. We are merely fellow servants, fellow sinners that have received unfathomable mercy. And we need to understand something. Because you know, we, we may look at this and go, okay, well, I'm not like that because I said I forgive you to the other person who, who sinned against me, right? I said those words. Or I told myself I forgive them. So I'm good, right? I'm in the clear. Uh, but we need to understand that forgiveness is not saying, I forgive you. It's not a magic spell. It's not this little passcode, right? Forgiveness is actually releasing the other person from that debt in your heart. Those are very, very different things. How do you know that you've forgiven somebody? It's not because you said the words, I forgive you. That's not the metric, right? Um, it, it's not because you try to convince yourself you've forgiven them. How do you know you've actually forgiven somebody? Because if, if, if what Jesus is saying is true here, we don't want to be like that servant. We look at that and we're very disturbed. If we saw somebody doing that in real life, we'd be horrified, wouldn't we? So how do we know that we've actually forgiven someone? Well, um, Thomas Watson, one of my favorite Christian writers, gives us something to consider when, when he says, when do we forgive others? In other words, how do we know that we've forgiven them? Uh, we know when we strive against all thoughts of revenge. We're not thinking about how we're going to get back at that other person. And, and in fact, we actually fight against those thoughts that may come into our mind. When we will not do our enemies harm, but wish well to them. When we don't stew on thinking, oh man, how am I going to see this person's downfall? But when we actually pursue their well-being and opportunities to bless them. When we grieve at their calamities. Right? When we are genuinely grieved in our heart that something bad has happened to that person instead of going, yes, fine, justice. When we pray for them, how often do you pray for the people that you are having a hard time forgiving? When we seek reconciliation with them and when we show ourselves ready on all accounts to relieve them. In other words, the evidence of what true forgiveness is is not that we have said the phrase, I forgive you. That's not what God's looking for from you. Um, it's that we genuinely, genuinely want and seek what's best for those who have sinned against us. It's that we genuinely want and seek what's best for those who have sinned against us. It's that we pray for their well-being. It's when we even seek opportunities to bless them. If you can't do that, if you're not doing those things, you have not forgiven that person. You have not forgiven that person. You're still holding on to that debt. Um, I had a very close friend once who I spent a lot of time with 
I've known for a very, very long time, um, who at one point in the past hurt me very, very deeply. Very deeply. And uh, I, I was convinced I'd forgiven this person. And uh, here I was this last week, studying this passage, doing the dishes, and this person pops into my head. And, and uh, I'm ashamed to say it. The first thought that followed this person popping into my head was, if they ever needed anything from me again, I will not be there for them. And then it was like conviction immediately. The Holy Spirit's like, there, see, you have not really forgiven that person. And I hadn't. I hadn't forgiven that. I thought I had. I told myself I had. If I'd seen this person, right, in, in, in the store or something, I would go up and give them a hug and say hi. But God pulled back the layers of my heart. Right? He made it clear I had not truly forgiven them. Forgiveness is hard, isn't it? Forgiveness is very very hard. Forgiveness of the kind God is asking of you here, that Jesus is teaching about here, is very hard. Maybe you've had someone in your life like that, like my friend. Are there people that deep down you actually haven't forgiven? Um, is there a part of you that's still holding on to that debt, even just a little bit like I was? You know how, you know if that's the case? Because you probably think about that person on a semi-regular basis. Maybe just for a moment, right? But they're popping into your head and you're feeling negative things about it. Right? Are there areas in your, your life, your relationships, where you are acting like this unforgiving servant? And brothers and sisters, forgiveness is hard, right? We're not in denial about that, I don't think. It's very difficult. And, and I would even go so far as to say that biblical forgiveness, the kind that Jesus is demanding here, is actually uh, practically impossible. I would say it's practically impossible apart from the grace and mercy of God as its foundation. Why does Jesus say there's no limit to the forgiveness that we must give? Because, brothers and sisters, has there been a limit to the forgiveness that you've received? Has there been a limit to God's mercy to you, His kindness to you, His grace to you? Even though you continue to sin against Him day by day by day by day, does God finally say, you know what? No more. I will not forgive that one. He does not. Jesus says there should be no limits to the forgiveness we extend because there is no limit to the forgiveness that we have received. God's mercy and forgiveness is the reason we must forgive others, regardless of how many times they sin against us. Uh, Ephesians 4.32, I think, is one of the most powerful verses in the Bible, and it makes this connection so clearly. It says, Be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Forgiving one another is God in Christ forgave you. What's the basis for our forgiveness? It's the gospel. It's that we are sinners who have been forgiven. And tragically, isn't that what makes this sinner's, this servant's response so horrible? So, so just horrifying to see? He had received such great mercy and he showed none. He showed none. That's what we are like when we don't forgive. That's what we are like when we don't forgive. Now, Jesus takes unforgiveness very seriously. It has no place in his kingdom. After all, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of greatly forgiven people. There are no people in the kingdom of heaven who don't need to be forgiven, right? And in the final verses of this text, Jesus ends the parable with with a pretty sobering warning in verses 31 and 35. Now, it appears when we look at verse 31 that the 
forgiven servant's actions are witnessed by some of the other servants of the king. And they're very distressed. They're very troubled. Uh, they're very disturbed, and, and rightly so. Um, seeing a hardened lack of forgiveness is a distressing thing. And they go and tell their master. They go tell the king. And the king hears the report of this. And in verse 32, he summons this, pre- this servant to his presence. Um, he does not ignore or overlook this unforgiveness, but it's actually a great offense to the king. And, and he will hold the unforgiving servant to account. This is not a good meeting. This is not going to go like the meeting they had just a little bit ago. In verse 32, the king rebukes the servant. He calls him a, a wicked servant. And, and indeed, to be forgiven of much and then refuse to forgive others is a very wicked thing. It's very sinful. It's very hypocritical. And the wicked servant is then reminded by the king of what happened. And we see in verse 32, I forgave you all that debt. All of it. Remember how much it was? And I forgave all of it to you because you pleaded with me. <clears throat> right? The king had immense mercy, wiping out an enormous debt, yet this made no impact on the first servant at all. He didn't remember or he didn't care. How often we forget just how great the debt of sin we've been forgiven of. And honestly, forgetting that mercy we've received is the fastest path to become an unforgiving person. Just forget about what God's done for you in Christ, and I promise you'll become an unforgiving person. And in verse 33, the king asks a revealing rhetorical question. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? That's that's really the question at the heart of this whole parable, isn't it? If we've received great mercy, shouldn't we show mercy? Is there really any other option? And sure, Forgiveness takes time, doesn't it? We, we don't often have this light bulb moment where we go from unforgiving to forgiving. God usually takes us on a little bit of a journey there. It takes some time, right? Um, but at the very least, do you have any other option besides at least working towards forgiveness? Maybe your heart's not there today. Maybe you're really struggling with that. It's understandable, right? That's, that's part of the, the challenge we face. But at the very least, are you committed to, by God's grace, working towards that forgiveness? Right? If you're a Christian, do you really have any other goal? Now, this servant faces the indignation of the king, and in verse 34, he's handed over to the jailers, or better translated as torturers, uh, to suffer until he should pay all his debt. Now, think about that for a moment. Is he ever going to pay that debt? No, he's not. He's not ever going to pay that debt. He's going to suffer at the hands of these torturers until he dies. He's now responsible for his own debt. That's, that's horrifying. And, and, and he now faces a, a fate far worse than the one he inflicted on his fellow servant. And this is a parable, of course. We can't get uh, you know, too literal, right? Because there's usually one main point of the parable. But Jesus is not shy about making this final connection here in verse 35. He says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Right, the king throws his servant in jail uh, and punishes him. And Jesus says, that's like what my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's, that's pretty heavy, isn't it? That's pretty heavy. God is aware of our unforgiveness. He is aware of the true state of our hearts. He can see through the I forgive you 
We can fool other people into thinking we're forgiving. We can even fool ourselves into thinking we're forgiving, but we cannot fool God. And God takes unforgiveness very seriously. This is not the first time that this connection between our forgiving of others and God's forgiveness of us has come up. I think back to right after the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, right? part of the Lord's Prayer is you pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. But then Jesus says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Or in Mark eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. You see the connection there? Uh, there's a bit of tension here, isn't there? Because, you know, on one hand, the Bible teaches very clearly we cannot lose our salvation, that we cannot lose the forgiveness we have, that we cannot lose our justified state in Christ, that we cannot be forgiven one moment and then an unforgiven person outside of the kingdom of God in another, right? The Bible says those things very clearly. Yet at the same time, it's also very clear there's a relationship between if we forgive others and God forgives us, or if we do not forgive others and God does not forgive us. There's a bit of a tension there, right? There is. Um, but don't overthink it. Here's Jesus' point. Um, if you are a Christian, you must be committed to forgiveness. That's the point. Don't even, don't even bother asking, well, if I don't forgive, does that mean I'm not? Just don't even worry about that. Just recognize your obligation as a Christian is nothing but to be a forgiving person. That's all you and I need to know, right? The warning is to point us to the seriousness of that command, right? That we are to be forgiving people. And, and when that's difficult, when it's difficult to be a forgiving person, we as Christians must be committed to working towards forgiveness. And if you don't, Jesus says you're an unforgiving person person. And God will judge you by the same standard by which you deal with others. Right? That's pretty sobering. That makes me not want to let unforgiveness dwell in my heart. I, I hope, right? It makes you not want to let unforgiveness dwell in your heart too because God takes that very seriously. And notice something else here. Right at the end of verse 35, Jesus says this forgiveness is required from the heart. It's required from the heart. When we read the Bible, we see that people who believe in Jesus have changed hearts. They're definitely not perfect, uh, but there is a change that God works in our hearts. And as a result, you and I are given the capacity for mercy and forgiveness that is radical. Right? The love of Christ is poured into our hearts. If you are an unforgiving Christian and you refuse to forgive, even when you're confronted by the very mercy you claim to have received, that raises some questions about whether you've actually experienced the grace of God. If you refuse I absolutely will not show mercy to this person. And you claim to have received it from God. You need to question that. You need to question that. We're not talking about struggling towards forgiveness. That's real. But if, if, if you are just dead set against even thinking about showing mercy to that person and forgiving them, um, you, need to, you need to consider whether you have actually received that grace from God, that mercy from God. And, and this final aspect of forgiving from the heart also highlights something else that touches on some of those objections that have maybe been floating around uh, your head, right? Based on this right here, forgiving from your heart, does the forgiveness that Jesus is talking about depend on the other person at all? 
No, it does not. Forgive them from your heart, right? Um, now, there is a kind of forgiveness. We see it in Luke 17, verse 3 and 4, for example. A kind of relational healing and reconciliation. That, that's a level of forgiveness. That's kind of external forgiveness. That does depend on the other person. That does depend on repentance, right? Um, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's t- talking about you as an individual, what you are responsible for. It's forgiving your brother from your heart, regardless of the other person, regardless of whether they said, I'm sorry, regardless of the ever they even recognize what they did was wrong. That's not a factor in what Jesus is saying here. Now, that doesn't mean forgiveness ignores justice or accountability, right? It doesn't mean that, but it does mean that the posture of your heart and my heart need to be merciful and compassionate regardless of the other person. Regardless. It's not a factor. And perhaps some of you are here this morning and, and, and you're not a Christian. And maybe you've never appealed to the king for mercy, right, regarding your, your debt of sin. Uh, let me encourage you, do not wait. Do not wait to do that. If you appeal to God and trust his son to forgive you, he will. He promises that $4 billion debt, you can have that removed from your spiritual shoulders today. He promises. Start by becoming forgiven, and then you can truly become a forgiving person. And if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you say, I've been forgiven by Christ, do you forgive others without boundaries, without limits? Do you forgive from your heart? We really have no other option than to pursue forgiveness. And, and if, you, if you're struggling to forgive someone, or someone's, right, um, spend time just seriously thinking about what you have been forgiven of. Spend time thinking about all the sins you have committed against other people and against God that God has been gracious to forgive. And, and I'm, not, I'm not saying just think about that for five seconds. Spend some serious time reflecting on that. We don't want to spend all of our time reflecting on our sin, right? That's not always helpful. But sometimes we need to be humbled by the magnitude of the mercy we've received, right? So if you are struggling with that, consider what you've received in Christ. And, and if, you are, if you're struggling to forgive, um, ask God to help you show the same mercy you've received to others. Right? We're, we're not naturally good at that. We have sinful hearts that don't like to forgive. We need God's help. So ask Him for help. Say, Lord, I know I need to forgive. It's really hard. I don't want to. And I do want to. And I don't know how. Please help me. Do you think God is going to say no to that prayer, brothers and sisters? I don't think He's going to say no to that prayer. And may we seek to be kind and tenderhearted with one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. Uh, Let's pray as we prepare for the Lord's table. Our Lord and our God, how merciful you are. Lord, how great and boundless is your forgiveness and your grace. Lord, all that we have been forgiven of, that debt that you have released from us, Lord, the debt of our sin, you have done so freely through Christ your Son. And Father, we pray, we beg you, Lord, that you would help us to be forgiving people. That you would help us to just let go of those debts that we cling to, Lord. Loose our fingers from those things. 
that we might be able to walk in such a manner that, that displays the mercy of Christ that we've received. And Lord, we confess this is hard for us, uh, but we know that by your grace, you can help us. So Lord, help us to be forgiving people. And may that be a display of the gospel uh, to those around us, to those who sin against us even, Lord. May they see Christ in us. And may that even be the beginning of their forgiveness in him. Lord, we thank you again for your mercy. We pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen.